Hi everyone, this is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And this show is for anyone that has a passion for health, a passion for healthcare, a passion for making other people healthier in this world. We've had a large spectrum of different people that do such, from healthcare investors to health tech, to health technology leaders, to providers, um, all of which have a different touch point in making this ecosystem better so we can make more healthier people faster, more scalable. Anyway, I'm super excited today. Happy Friday, everyone. It is uh, Kevin Zhang on the show. Kevin is a partner at Upfront Ventures. Really enthused to have him on the show, have him share his background, what has him passionate about the healthcare space and different segments that are out there. But I'm not gonna steal his thunder. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Anthony. Really appreciate you having, uh, having me on the show. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, what we love to always start doing uh, on these shows is, you know, is origin stories. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about the series of events that have led you to where you're at. Tell us a little bit, take us back to where it all started. Yeah, of course, happy to. Um, well, I moved to the US when I was nine uh, from China. So I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, and pretty much from high school time, uh, I was anointed to be a doctor by my parents. And unfortunately, I think I continue to disappoint, disappoint them on that front. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I mean, there were a number of factors. I think, um, you know, in high school, I, I, I went to high school in Pasadena across the street from Caltech and was very lucky to work at, um, work at, uh, laboratory there, um, lab of uh, Varshavsky, and he's one of the pioneers in looking at cell death pathways. Um, little did I know that you know I was working with some cutting-edge, top-notch researchers in high school, and then in college um, I kind of switched to the opposite side and uh, worked in neurogenesis instead. So the idea was to there are a couple of genes we were looking at. If you knock them out, does it have an impact on slowing and decreasing the number of new neurons that are moving into the olfactory bulb? Um, and it was particularly interesting because that was at a time when, you know, Harvard only had a couple sort of advanced two photon uh, imaging setups, which you can use to image um, uh, brain cells, slices, um, brain slices um, across different depth layers. Um, and I got to work on, uh, work on that, those systems. And it was very, very interesting. Um, you know, ultimately it was really senior year um, after I had, taking my MCATs that I decided I didn't want to be a doctor. Um, and there were a number of different reasons, but I think first and foremost to me was just, I, I didn't feel like being a physician um, uh, was actually sort of the best way to um, solve some of the bigger healthcare problems that we have. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, especially in the US healthcare system, I feel like if you're a fantastic physician, um, you tend to specialize more and more. Um, and I didn't really want to go down that sort of specialist path and becoming, you know, only someone who's treating patients of this particular type and being very, very good as those types of surgeries, etc. Um, and so decided not to apply to med school. Um, uh, unfortunately, it was 2009, so it wasn't exactly easy to find a job. And, and luckily, I actually ended up at a digital health startup in Boston uh, called Veris Health. They've since... Um, changed names multiple times, it's now called Cultivity, but, but that was really a fortuitous two years for me because that company um, 
had just been acquired and basically went public when I was there. And it was the first IPO on NASDAQ. Um, and we did a, lo a lot of and continue to do um, medical claims analytics and then eventually medical record analytics. Um, and, you know, some of these themes will repeat itself, which is really some of the key questions, right? How do you uh, figure out uh, and predict healthcare costs, you know, for patients of uh, <clears throat> different risk levels, right? Mm -hmm. How do you um, benchmark the providers themselves and figure out, you know, given their risk adjusted patient populations, you know, who's doing well, who's underperforming, uh, how do you identify those gaps in cares and try to intervene, right? Whether as a payer or as a healthcare uh, system. And so I ended up working on a lot of the provider side of our product, um, which was which was super interesting and got me some exposure to to the provider side. Um, and so that, that was about two years. And then I did uh, a short stint at the Boston Consulting Group. Um, a lot of those projects ended up being around tech and healthcare as well. Um, this time more on the payer side. Um, and then uh, about six years ago, I moved back to LA and uh, joined Upfront Ventures. Um, and so now at Upfront, I lead a lot of our healthcare investments, as well as we've gotten more and more deeper into life sciences investments as well. So those two things take up the majority of my time. Mm, nice, nice, Kevin. Yeah, I, I love it. And, um, you know, uh, definitely, obviously, you're going you're gonna to make your parents proud for going the path that you went instead of going down to, uh, to the, me the medical uh, school route, or I should say, you know, becoming a doctor. And obviously what you're doing right now is just so much more higher impact and scalable. You mentioned a couple of interesting themes. I mean, I'm, I'm very fascinated, obviously, on like the, uh, the gene editing or um, I forget the terminology used, but, you know, I'm really fascinated by technologies uh, uh, minus the ethical you know, pieces of it, that which, which, are, which are, you know, a whole separate thing on itself. But, you know, like, you know, how, how can you, um, you know, is disease something that one could tackle and could you suppress, you know, different genes or different things? Uh, to prevent or you know diseases and things like that but you also mentioned things like prediction risk identification maybe you can go deeper on one of these topics specifically one or two that have you really passionate these days explain a little bit about what and how it works but why why is it exciting and what kind of possibilities you know does 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 it present in the future yeah of course happy to um... And so why don't we talk a little bit about um, um, obviously the rise of genetic testing and mm -hmm. you know how that you know how I think that might play out and, and, and impact the healthcare system and obviously in turn impact the patients. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, you know much of the work that has been done you know since we sequenced the human genome have been focused on identifying single gene mutations. Mm -hmm. Really, you know these are some of the rare genetic conditions where you know it's caused by a single gene. Um, but we also know that the majority of, you know, healthcare conditions, especially the chronic conditions that obviously is costing, um, you know, this country and every other country uh, the most amount of money, um, those are very complex diseases that involve a great number of different genes. Um, and those as well are impacted by patients, obviously lifestyle choices, their behavior choices. Um, and those happen through what's called uh, or currently it's recognized as happening through epigenetic changes. So really not so much the actual underlying gene, but how those genes are expressed um, by your body. And so um, I think we're just on the verge of being able to sequence and start to correlate um, multiple genes and their impact on a particular, you know, uh, on a particular set of disease markers, uh, biomarkers, let's say. Um, mm -hmm. Still, you know, I think the biggest hurdle is data. 
because um, not only do you need obviously a wide enough patient population um, who have you know gone through deeper deeper levels of sequencing, at the same time you need to correlate that to actually their phenotypes, right? Mm-hmm. You need to understand you know what is their current you know progression of their diabetes. You know what is their daily habits like? Like what do they eat and what is their exercise regi- uh, you know regimen? How do they feel? And so, frankly, you know the healthcare system is not designed to gather a lot of the phenotypical data from patients. Um, it's sort of designed, you know, historically from a fee for, you know, fee-for-service kind of model to, to surgically treat, you know, diagnose and treat, you know, one thing at a time. Um, and the data also tends to spread amongst the different healthcare providers you go to. So I think, you know, a lot of it to me, you know, how do we solve this data challenge? How do we get more complete pieces of the patient's data, whether it's trying to get it from the different healthcare providers, as well as, you know, now that there's much cheaper sensors uh, and wearables and, you know, they're continually improving um, in their in their uh, accuracy and in their quality, you know, can you also start to peer into what the daily lives are like, um, you know, for these patients and sort of provide that, um, that sort of critically missing data set. I mean, look, this is not going to be easy. It's going to take right. a lot, right? You need to construct this data set for every single you know, sort of version uh, of a disease condition for different patient populations stratified by age, by gender, by ethnicity, right? I mean, like this Mm -hmm. is, it's a lot of work. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think luckily a lot of people are working on it. And two, the cost of sequencing continues to come down. And three, hopefully, you know, um, and you're obviously a big believer in this, you know, as we step into and transition into a value-based healthcare system, um, you know, hopefully the providers and payers will start to, be properly incentivized as well to care for more longer-term holistic health of a patient versus, you know, I only have you for this particular episode. Mm, mm. Now, Kevin, yeah, lots, lots to unpack there. Um, I think a couple of pieces on kind of the could and should elements of it, and and I know there's a stigmatization of, of this, even talking about it, and obviously I would say a slight, you know, controversy about it, but you know. Do you feel like we're living in the next, or let's just say like the next five or 10 years that if someone has like a genetic disorder, someone has some sort of mutation that could be solved or a disease state, you know, should we tackle that? You know, should we cure for it? Um, so that's my first question is, should we do it? Can we do it over the next five, 10 years? Do you see the technologies sequencing all the pieces in the right place to do it over the next five to 10 years? Uh, and then my follow up to that, not to fit 17 questions in one here, but, um, you know, is how, how would this work from an insurance standpoint, you know, kind of the ethical side of like, you know, oh, this person has a genetic disorder, you know, how is insurance gonna, you know, how should, what, what should be our mental model or what's your mental model looking at it? So I'm kind of curious on the could and the should, and then the, the, the pain, the payment for the service, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think you laid out the question in a, in a fantastic way. And really it's, it's actually the three spokes you talked about, right? Um, you know. Setting aside, you know, whether the technology will be there or not, right? And, and I think that's a huge range in the sense that, yeah, the technology might be there for a very specific condition uh, because the data set, you know, has already been, been gathered um, for a while and, um, and it's, you know, let's say not quite as complex um, as, 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 you know, uh, sort of some of the more complicated chronic conditions. But um, point being, though, that like one, um, you have to be able to understand even that this condition is likely caused by a combination of these genes, right? Mm-hmm. So that people would have started trying to gather that data set. And then two, you have to be able to turn that into an actual diagnostic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you know, you can actually assess that whether it's inpatient or outpatient or at a lab or, 
you know, et cetera. Um, and then three, uh, then obviously, you know, those, you know, companion diagnostics uh, would then also help in guiding actually the creation of therapeutics, you know, for that, for that disease, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, a very long term, obviously, you know, takes quite a while, even with some of the new breakthrough de- designation at the FDA, which has been fantastic. They've been speeding up a lot of um, sort of uh, new drug approvals, new therapeutic approvals, especially for rare conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still an effort that takes, um, you know, five to eight years, um, sort of um, at minimum. Um, and so ultimately on the payer side, I think, you know, unlike, um, you know, unlike uh, sort of how most drugs are, are paid for and reimbursed for these days, I think for a lot of these genetic, sort of complex trait genetic conditions, um, there is that diagnostic component that has to come with it. And it's going to be a specialized diagnostic component, right? Mm. Um, Because you need a particular um, genetic test for that condition, um, probably followed up with other uh, companion diagnostics as well, um, which, you know, has its own reimbursement. um, And then, and then that sort of tells you what level of the therapeutics to deliver. Mm. Um, And so, um, look, I think that's, I think that's happening already or starting to happen. Um, again, it depends on the disease condition. Um, and But I'm very bullish that um, we're moving down that path. And, and as mm-hmm. especially, I think, as payers, um, this is where, you know, I think payers have sort of extra power and responsibility um, to be uh-huh. some of these sort of um, uh, latest and greatest, sort of the most cutting edge um, therapeutics. Um, and I think as obviously the payer market itself gets more competitive, right? Um, if you're a payer that offers, you know, one of these newer diagnostic plus therapeutics plays, um, you know, that does make you more competitive market when you're trying to sell into, you know, that self, uh, sell into that uh, employer or sell into that uh, client base of yours. So I think you're going to start to see um, uh, that sort of capability um, becoming more prominent in payers and the <coughs> hiring of the right people to be able to assess those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, Kevin, this is great. And, and you're, 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 you know, obviously highlighting a lot of, you know, interesting fringe health topics, but some really good core innovations that I think, you know, are going to serve as a foundation for the future of healthcare, you know, not just from a diagnostic and, um, you know, a genetic uh, standpoint, um, but, uh, you know, from innovative payment models and value-based models. Um, so, so Kevin, obviously in the space, you invest and you vote with your dollars, um, you see a lot of different innovations in this space along the lines of kind of what we're talking about here. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your vision for healthcare in the future. What are some things that themes, uh, other themes that have you excited about, you know, the future? Obviously on this show, we've talked about everything from, you know, CRISPR genomics to uh, omni-channel health engagement to AI and, and, and a lot in between. But what are some things that really have you enthused about possibilities in the future sounds good um well let me let me talk about two of them um and Mm -hmm. i'll try to frame them more um in terms of their uh the underlying customers Mm -hmm. as opposed to the as opposed to the technology sure um and and you know the first one i think you'll understand very well i mean i think you know providers um it's tough to be a provider Right. You know, what I didn't say earlier was, you know, part of the reason for me not wanting to become a doctor is, you know, do I really want to go through all those years of med school and then residency and then fellowship um, and then going into sort of a a provider landscape that's getting increasingly consolidated. Right. And aggregated. Right. Um, And, you know, that that has its pluses and minuses. And as far as I can tell, you know, 
it's basically just in tremendous flux, right? And that was very mm-hmm. uncertain for me at the time. Um, and then, and, you know, sort of hearing from other doctors that were already in the, in the field, it was very clear that they were quite apprehensive of, of sort of what's coming. Um, right. And so one of the big, you know, I would say drawbacks of, of being a provider really is having to deal with all the administrative work and all of the paperwork and all of the documentation, right? And I think um, if you look at the electronic health record, um, that is now starting to take up more than 50% time, you know, of a provider's time, right? Uh, and and that directly cuts down not only into obviously their time with patients, mm-hmm. uh, it also directly cuts down into their time, you know, for their personal lives, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know this, you talk to a lot of doctors and, you know, what did they do when they get home, right? Uh, right. <laughs> or what did they do right before bed? You got to finish your documentation, right? And right. It's, got to. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. I think um, the level of documentation uh, that needs to be done, uh, as well as the checking of that documentation, right, for billing purposes, um, uh, you know, revenue cycle management after that, um, it, it's just, it is a tremendous tax, I would argue, on the healthcare system. Um, and so I love looking for anything that can help streamline the workflow of providers, mm-hmm. uh, as well as helping them collaborate more because ultimately at the end of the day, it is very much a collaborative effort between between the doctor and uh, the PA and the nurse practitioner and <laughs> front office and back office and, and you know other specialists you refer to, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, along those lines, we actually made an investment in a medical record startup called Canvas Health mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in San Francisco. <laughs> They're still quite an early stage company, but you know what drove me for that investment was, you know, I saw dozens of companies that were building, you know, sort of specific features and tools to help address part of the sort of the workflow challenge for for providers. Right? And it could be everything from like, hey, we have a tool to help you with, um, you know, more efficient intake of your patients that they can complete before they get to your office, or. Mm-hmm. We have a tool for you to communicate with your patients afterwards and you can remind them of care protocols or we have a tool for helping you schedule more efficiently. We have a tool for um, billing. Um, we have a tool for, you know, specifically chronic care management and helping you, you know, do a set of these services and claim reimbursement dollars for them. I mean, anyway, the list goes on. Um, <clears throat> the challenge for me was always that, you know, sort of that those products in the sales process was a kind of a, uh, a three punch process where not only do you have to get buy-in from the providers, um, you then have to integrate into their existing systems and onboard them. And ultimately, you know, you're, um, for some of the better EMRs, you know, you might be part of their app store if they have one, right? Or right. Their API if they have one. Um, and then there is sort of always that concern or worry of, you know, how much support am I going to get from that platform? You know, how much of a tax am I going to pay to that platform? Um, and anyway, very complicated uh, sales process and yet at the end of the day um, I think it's challenging to charge a lot for one piece or, or even two to three pieces um, and hence you know I ended up back in this medical records platform because that is still the largest spend on the software side right it's basically your medical record and your data warehouse um, and if you can incorporate um, a lot of those features already into that single platform and mm-hmm. drive everything from a central obviously the actual medical record itself and make it structured data um, and allow people to plug into it and utilize it. Um, that was sort of my my lens on, you know, uh, what I think could be a primary driver trying to improve um, uh, provider collaboration and uh, workflow. Uh, I love it. Yeah. 
I love it, Kevin. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, out of all the innovations, I mean, a lot of the this is the innovations we talked about earlier in this in this episode are more, you know, almost like you know modern <laughs> science fiction coming to fruition. But you know, workflow, freeing up time, letting people focus. I mean, you know, innovation to drive you know rescuing of time sounds like an interesting theme that you're interested in, but. I think everyone is as well. You know, time is probably the biggest asset, and the more you can reclaim back, allows you to, you know, right. The the whole provider system positions to focus on what's, you know, super important. Important, and so, uh, and obviously, you guys are voting with your dollars. So it's really fascinating to see, you know, these companies and these technologies, you know, focus around the customer as well. Uh, and Kevin, um, you know, I want to be sensitive to your time, but one thing um, I, I think before earlier you mentioned that. Um, you know, one thing I will actually, one thing I always try and draw out a little bit more is, you know, you see so many trends in healthcare, so many different, um, you know, interesting things going on. Tell us a little bit about something on your personal health that really works for you from your own well-being or health perspective, or maybe an experience you'd like to share um, on. Uh, it's always fascinating to see how someone, you know, takes the kind of the macro world, external world, and kind of they're internalizing it. Um, you know, for their own life, especially someone that's in this space. I'm not sure if you have anything to share there. <laughs> well, uh, there's my there's my current problem. You might have heard <laughs> me cough a couple of times, which is I've had this terrible cold uh, for the last two and a half weeks, and mm-hmm. probably went one too many times to CVS and tried everything under the sun on you know, from Mucinex to Dayquil to Robitussin, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, none of that really worked. Um, and, you know, I ended up actually getting a concierge doctor call from Heal. Um, mm. That was that was quite convenient. And then um, it was interesting. The doctor actually told me that, um, yeah, water with honey works probably better than all of those cough medicines. Obviously, that's just his opinion. I, don't, I haven't looked into research or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think... Um, you know, the thing that I kind of want to highlight is, you know, when I walked into that CVS aisle, you know, the cold medicine aisle, that's probably like the bi- biggest, most complicated aisle at CVS. Yeah. There are endless, I mean, <laughs> like 10 versions of Mucinex and Dayquil each, right? And it's like right. in different forms and, you know, liquid and gel caps. And right. And it's a high anxiety aisle of decision. High anxiety aisle. <laughs> yeah. And, and I do think that there's, you know, there's a lot that can be done on sort of streamlining and, and you know, helping guide patients and, and consumers uh, to search for the right sort of healthcare products. Um, and, and that, frankly, doesn't, doesn't really exist at all. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, or, or it exists too much, right? You have too much of that information online and people kind of get confused and swayed by one side over another and things like that. Um, but, um, but yeah, if, if we can have, you know, telemedicine you know sort of very simple telemedicine in the form of like even if it's just that pharmacist as the pharmacy mm-hmm. we kind of help you a little bit um mm-hmm. but you know in this case you don't have to wait in line of 10 people trying to pick up, the, pick up their right. t- talk to them uh, i would use that next time for sure um. <laughs> i love it i love it yeah no I, I agree i think i mean how many health problems would be solved by just getting like this like micro help like in real time for like little things you know it's it all stems from like the decisions you make when you're initially sick and if you're doing the wrong things, right? You're going to, you're going to have a cough for, for a while, you know? And so, um, Kevin, this is pretty interesting. Well, first of all, hope you feel better. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, it's very fascinating all of the different topics you've touched upon. You went deep, you went broad. Um, I think you've given our listeners a lot to think about and chew on, uh, to, uh, on, to that point, you know, our listeners, 
what would be a good way for our listeners to get in contact with you if they'd like to engage with you? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, the handle is just at Kevin Y uh, Zane. So my full name was basically the letter Y in the middle. Um, you know, love to engage uh, and chat with anyone over dialogue about anything healthcare wise. Great, great. Well, well, Kevin, thanks again for being on the show. Our listeners out there, to everyone out there, again, this is the Pop Health Show. This is for people that have a passion for health and for making other people healthier in this world. Kevin, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you so much for making time. Of course, really love this conversation. Thanks, Thank Anthony. Thank you so much. Thank you.